Leeds in West Yorkshire, the county's largest city and home to almost a million people. It's also home to one of the largest hospital trusts in the country, the Leeds Teaching Hospitals. Hi, my name's Liz Whittaker. I'm a broadcaster, journalist and Yorkshire resident. And in this podcast series, I'm going to take you on a journey behind the scenes as I'm invited into the hospitals that are doing incredible things, not just saving lives. In this episode, we talk transplants. Transplants may seem commonplace now with almost 70 years of successful organ transplant history in the UK. But every day, someone will die waiting for a transplant. This urgent need for organs underscores their life-saving potential. I wanted to take a really good look at how it all works and hear about the intricate processes involved in liver transplantation. So my name is Shahid Farid and I'm a consultant transplant surgeon and organ retrieval surgeon at St James's University Hospital in Leeds. Shahid and members of his team will be talking us through the fascinating world of liver donation and transplantation. We're going to explore the entire journey from donor to recipient. Everyone says that transplantation is an amazing specialty and it unfortunately always starts with a tragedy. Somebody unfortunately has to have uh, an event in their life that means that their life comes to an end. And when somebody comes to hospital uh, and unfortunately their disease or their event has led them to a situation where it's terminal or indeed they're not going to survive, that is when the transplantation process starts and we find out that potentially people can be donors. So my name's Claire Croxall. I'm a specialist nurse for organ donation um, for Leeds Teaching Hospitals. Claire is one of 350 specialist nurses for organ donation in the UK. Sometimes we say it's like a puzzle of a jigsaw putting everything together. Claire receives referrals for patients at the end of their lives or those where no more treatment's possible. Once the doctors have made the decision that it, it, that person's coming to the end of their life and the family want to support it, there's things that we have to do. We have to send bloods to te- check that patient's tissue typing and blood group and things like that. And they take quite a little bit of time sometimes to process, up to six hours sometimes. And then we've got to find out as much as we can about that person that, that is hopefully donating their organs. So we can ring GPs, we can um, read through medical notes. We also sit with the family and, and do a question with them about their loved one. It's quite a nice time because they get to sit with us and tell us all about their loved one. We ask questions about them and they tell us about them and we find out things that might be relevant for the donation. And then we start talking to recipient coordinators all across the country um, and finding people that could be matched for each organ. So if you can imagine that one person might be donating two, three, four, five organs. There's lots of phone calls in the background that the family don't need to know about and family don't um, need to worry about. It's our job to do that, but it is quite a a tricky process, um, sort of coordinating it all, and that's our job in the middle. The potential for organ donation depends on so many factors, from age to the condition of the donor. Generally, younger donors have a greater likelihood of donating multiple organs whilst older donors may have fewer organs available. Kidney donation, for instance, can be considered up to the age of 85. Other organs that can be donated include the heart, lungs, pancreas, bowel and upper limb. 
Additionally, tissues such as blood vessels, bones and skin are also discussed with the family. When we sit down with a family who want to support donation, we'll talk them through all the, the main organs like liver and things that we've talked about, but we will then talk about corneas and skin, and it is a little bit difficult. It is something that people aren't aware of, but we'll work with each family and talk to them, and we'll tell them the benefits of each, um, donate in each tissue. We call those kind of things eyes and, eyes and um, skin and things like that. We call them tissues rather than organs, and we'll talk about that. And often when they know the benefits... They, they will donate. Sometimes, you know, people have um, feelings, quite emotive feelings about certain things, specifically eyes. But um, we'll just work with the family and try and see what they feel comfortable with. One of my um, first donors in Leeds was, unfortunately, a man in his, I think he was only early 40s. When he donated, he donated a lot and his wife took so much out of it because she just said that he would love that, he would love to to have given so much. And I remember specifically he donated his eyes to a lady in the 90s and she got so much out of that and, and um, liked to think that she could continue to read. So that one's one that stuck with me. Hello, I'm Mike Holwell and I'm one of the liver recipient coordinators here at St James's. Mike and the other recipient transplant coordinators play a crucial role in supporting and guiding organ transplant recipients through their journey. It, it literally can happen any time of the day or night. And it's not quite as dramatic when you see the, you know, the, the lifeboats. They don't sort of drop everything and just run. But it, it's pretty close to that. So we, we go about our normal day-to-day -day life. Um, my big hobby is playing the trumpet so I'm quite often playing the trumpet in an evening and I've been to band practice with my pager if I've been on call and I'll sit with it my phone on the, the music stand Hello, it's Mike, liver transplant coordinator Uh-huh, you've got a liver offer for me, okay Super, I'll have a look at that and I'll get back to you Okay, cheers, bye We'd have a look at the, the information and we could log on to part of NHS Blood and Transplants website and have a look at the donor's info and the, the nurses that look after the donors do a fabulous job at compiling all that information. So we get the medical history, we also get information about any, for want of a better phrase, sex, drugs, rock and roll. So, you know, if they've got high risk sexual behaviour, any drug taking behaviour, body piercing, tattooing. So there's the medical but also the social side. Um, and then we make a decision with the surgeons whether that's likely to be a liver that's going to be safe to transplant. And as far as we can see, it's not going to do any harm to the, to the recipient. You can, you can be very popular suddenly because there's all the different teams are talking to you, wanting to know what's happening. There's a lot going on, there's a lot of phone calls. Um, lots of people need to know what's happening on the transplant side of things, all those recipient coordinators. But as well, it's just, we just try and keep as calm as possible, just the, the timings, keep, we've got a board, we keep everything up to date, we've got our iPads, we keep everything up to date on there. So if we decide to accept the liver, we then need to make sure that the staff and the patient and the liver is in the right place at the right time. And that process can take sometimes up to 24 hours. When we look back at our call history, we might have made, you know, 120 phone calls to set that up and dealt with possibly sometimes 
15 different teams, different people to, to make sure that, that everything's in the right place ready for, for when we need it. Having that in order, we can then actually progress the logistics of how we actually get from organ donor to actual process of actually re removing the organs. And so that process usually involves discussing with each of the centres that require an organ. So it'll be a discussion with the liver team, be it in Leeds or in Edinburgh or around the country. You have the kidney team, the pancreas team, the, the, the bowel team, for example, are all involved in that conversation. And then what happens is a logistical organisation exercise of bringing teams from all over the United Kingdom to a certain donor hospital and timing that accordingly and then arranging it because recipients also at the same time have to be notified to come in to their implanting centre. So a lot of things happen simultaneously once that decision has been made that an organ donor is suitable for organ retrieval. My name is Rachel Summers. I've done multiple roles within the organ donation transplantation process. I have worked as a specialist nurse for organ donation. Um, I then changed uh, my job and moved to being a renal recipient coordinator um, and then I've also working as a perfusionist on the National Organ Retrieval Service. There's eight abdominal retrieval teams throughout the country and three cardiothoracic teams on call at any one time so you have to mobilise them to arrive at the same time um, so that's quite a feat in itself to get two separate teams. Um, so as my role on the NORS team, so we get the call to say uh, there's a donor in whatever hospital, um, you're being mobilised, we need to leave Leeds at this time, then we have to get ourselves to the hospital and pack our kit up, we're given the information about the donor, their age, the type of donation, what organs have been um, accepted and then we pack our kit up um, and take everything that we need out to do the operation. Um, so we all meet outside Lincoln Wing here at St James's, we get into a um, it's kind of like an ambulance that's like a minibus and um, pack all of our kit in. It's usually about 90 kilos of kit that we take with us and um, then go off to the hospital um, to meet the specialists for organ donation. Our job is to take is to see the patient through the whole donation pathway. So um, there's two pathways. It's either donation um, by brainstem death, which we're now starting to call neurological death, or um, donation by circulatory death. So they're the two different different pathways. And either way, um, whichever pathway that that patient falls into, our job is to take that patient to theatre once they have passed away, and that's been verified by doctors that that person unfortunately has passed away, we take that, that person to theatre and um, it's our job to coordinate with the people who, like I said, the recipient coordinators all around the country, who um, they've got their patients who are accepting these organs, they're waiting for these organs and we keep them updated. It's our job as well um, to keep an eye on all the timing so everybody knows what's happening, everybody's aware that um, organs will be leaving soon because obviously you can imagine if you're transplanting, it's, it's very time um, specific. And we, it's just a normal surgery like any other people sometimes are quite worried about the surgery and um, having been in there, it is just like a normal dignified process just like any other operation. What the retrieval operation is fundamentally about is to remove blood because we know blood that once it stops flowing, it congeals and it clots. And that clots in the organ. And if you then put it into somebody else and allow new blood to go in it, 
There's no blood that goes into it. It simply will not work. So the first process of retrieval is to remove all the blood. And we do that by allowing blood to drain from the main blood vessels and then replacing it with cold fluid that has special preservatives in it to actually uh, protect the cells, protect the organ from the injury that comes from ischemia or lack of blood supply. Uh, once that is done, then the organs are given a time to cool down because we know that the temperature of the body is normally 37 degrees and then during the retrieval process, what we want is organs that are really cold because when organs are cold, that means they're using less energy, consuming less oxygen and therefore they're protected. Uh, and once the organs have cooled down, then it comes to the process of actually removing them. A lot of people think that this is a very quick process and that it has to be done in a very rapid way. It, it does, but most importantly, it's done in a very careful way, a, a dignified way, because all the outcomes of that operation depend on careful dissection, protection of the small blood vessels and protection of the organ. And once those organs are removed in that way, they're then put onto a system, be it ice, to cool them down, and then they're assessed at the back table. So they're then looked at. That's where pictures are taken, communication is made to the implanting centre to say these organs are good and this is what they look like, this is how much it weighs, the liver is um, good quality, it has no arterial or va vascular uh, issues, and that's information that's conveyed to the implanting centre. The organs have to come out in the best state possible, so it's really important that we have surgeons and as well surgical care practitioners on our team that are very skilled at taking these organs out to ensure they come out. It's, it's this patient's legacy to leave um, these organs and it's, and it's our responsibility to have them in the best state possible so that they have the best outcome when they're put into the recipient. We've recently in the last few years started doing a moment of honour for our donors. So just before surgery um, starts, um, we'll just have a few seconds where we just stop and pause and we can just think and reflect about what that person's doing, that gift that they're giving, um, think about them as a person in life. It's really nice, it's really moving. Sometimes family want music playing, sometimes family want some words saying and that's something that we've just started doing in the last couple of years and actually it's really nice for us as a NOS team to be able to take part in that and I think it just it grounds the whole theatre and just brings you back because it can be a really stressful environment so actually it just calms everyone down and it just makes you realise what we're here for. It's a really lovely thing and once we tell families about that they feel really proud as well and it means a lot to them. And then once the operation's finished the specialist nurse for organ donation and usually the local hospital team will perform final cares. And we'll do things afterwards after the surgery's finished. I think the, the main thing that we like to get across to families when we have those initial conversations is Regardless of donation, regardless of the decision about donation, the priority is always that person's dignity and um, it being as compassionate as possible. So whatever care that they would normally get at the end of their life, we want them to have exactly the same, even though donation's involved, and we always make sure that happens. So if a family want to help wash their, their loved one, which they might have wanted to do regardless of donation, that can happen after surgery. Um, Anything like the hair um, plaiting or wearing a certain football shirt and things, we'll do that as well. So although we're going into theatre and theatre is quite a sterile environment and it, it, like I say, it's an any normal operation, afterwards we will put a, a touching side into it and try and make it as personal to that person as possible for their family. Anything that they specific that they've wanted, we might play music or anything at that point as well.
by and large, for when we donate after death, it's usually the case that the organ donor is from a distant hospital and that the transplant recipient is at one of the, one of the seven transplant centres in the United Kingdom for liver. The organs were packed and then sent off to the recipient centres. So sometimes they come back with the retrieval team. If they're coming back to Leeds, we would bring that back with us. They can also be brought to us by plane and ambulance uh, to, to actually shorten the, the time that it takes. Because as you said at the beginning, the clock is ticking and the organ does suffer the longer it waits to get into to the eventual transplant recipient. And at that point is when those organs are handed over to the recipient centre. So for a transplant surgeon who's now going to do a liver transplant, uh, unlike any other organ, the process actually starts by removing the old organ. Where in kidney transplantation, you don't remove the old kidney. You actually put it into a new place. But in a liver, you have to remove the old liver uh, without too much stress in the body. But unfortunately, the liver is, is in a precarious position because through it runs the main vein that takes blood to the heart. And sometimes when you have to remove the old liver, you have to actually apply clamps uh, to the blood flow going in to the liver and blood flow coming out of the liver to separate the blood to, to remove the old liver. But that clamping process can actually cause a lot of instability to the patient because blood that's meant to be going in a certain direction has now been interrupted in various ways. So that's quite a big ask of the patient. They have to be fit enough. So the, yes, they are very sick, but their heart and their lungs have to be fit enough to take this assault, which is what it is during that process. But once the liver is out, then it comes to the process of taking that liver that's usually on ice, nowadays also on machines, is then removed and then put in in a stepwise way to connect the blood going in to ensure blood comes out. But the liver has multiple functions and there's also the joining up of the bile ducts. So that's all done usually under special circumstances of high magnification glasses because these vessels that we're talking about are not big. Uh, they can be three to four millimetres in diameter and you have to join that to the uh, blood vessels uh, with usually a suture, which is essentially a thread, uh, with hand and to ensure that there's no twists and no, no kinks because that interrupts the blood supply. And we know that in a transplant patient, there's only one way blood gets in and therefore any distortion to that has significant consequences on, on, on the blood uh, supply to the liver. Unlike in, a, in, in you and I just now, we've got different ways that blood gets to our liver so we can compensate a lot, but not in a transplant operation. Surgery can take between five and eight hours, but it can be a slow and painstaking wait to find out if it's actually been a success. But the ultimate answer usually is within the 24-48 hours in intensive care and how quickly patients are taken off what most people consider life support machines, uh, breathing tubes, and how quickly they come off that are usually good signs. And actually the blood tests on day one, day two tell you a very good story as well. But then how does the body accept this new foreign material inside it and the way that we do that is to actually use drugs and immunosuppressants. Uh, one of the reasons why transplants didn't work in the 80s and 70s was that we still haven't had advances in these medicines called immunosuppressants and it was the work done by some UK surgeons in Cambridge that actually found out new drugs that allowed us to keep our organs more viable in the body once transplanted. And then fast forward to, to our current era, we've got fantastic drugs now that can really do amazing things in your body accepting the organs. So the concept of rejection in liver uh, does happen, but it's not actually as, as worrisome as it used to be in the past. 
but the medicines have side effects and the side effects themselves can can be um, minor from headaches to tremors right up to consequences instead of life-threatening infections because it's dampening your immune system down therefore you can get infections that can be life-threatening and viruses that you and I can handle day in day out unfortunately can be life-threatening for these transplant recipients as well and the ones that worry us most uh, initially is the, is the immediate and short-term ones because they're the most biggest uh, short-acting threats to life. So if the liver doesn't work, called primary non-function, well, that patient is not going to survive. And that patient will either need a new liver very quickly uh, to avoid that premature death. You are giving people a life-saving chance because give it, for some people, months, other people, a couple of years, they, they'll, they'll be dead, unfortunately, because of the liver disease. And to know that you play your part in um, in getting them through that and, and giving them that chance is brilliant. But also knowing that, that patients really appreciate the, the emotional support that we that we give them as well. And patients have said to us, do you know what? If it wasn't for your support, we, we'd have never got through it, you know. Um, and just to know that you do that as your day-to-day -day job is, is really humbling and it is, it is absolutely brilliant. It was a female in really 30s, so it's like a like-for-like, like, really. You know, maybe that's why we're such a good match, but I don't know anything else, but I'd love to know. I'd love to know more about her, but... Sasha is 34. She's mum to Molly and Louie, wife to Matty, and she works as a healthcare assistant at Leeds Hospice. Sasha was diagnosed with a hereditary autoimmune disease called primary biliary cholangitis in 2016. I mean, the transplant came at the right time, I think, because I was getting more and more poorly, like I sort of dealt with it. Because when you have young kids and you're working, you've got to deal with it, haven't you? But um, I don't know how I did it, because how I feel now compared to how I did feel. I think you just do it, but I'll look back and go, oh my God. <laughs> Sometimes I still can't believe it's happened. Because when I, when I got diagnosed with it, I didn't think, oh, I'm gonna have a liver transplant because I never in my life thought I'd have major surgery. PBC is a type of liver disease that can get gradually worse over time without treatment and may eventually lead to liver failure. Sasha and I sat down to chat about the donation process as a recipient. Well, I had a first call in December, I think it was December the 22nd or 23rd. But that didn't go ahead, it went, I mean, we went to the hospital and everything with my husband and it went the right liver, so that got, so I sort of felt a bit more prepared that I knew what was sort of going to happen when I did get the call. And then, yeah, it was in September time, my husband was away with his friends in Croatia <laughs> for his 40th celebration, so I was at home with the kids. It's about seven o'clock in the morning, um, making the breakfast before I was going to take him to school and my phone rang and I know the hospital number and I was thinking, why are they ringing me at this? I didn't even think at all. And they, they just sort of said, oh, we've got a liver for you. And I was like, I need to get my kids to school. <laughs> you just start going to mum mode. I was like, I'm just making the breakfast. I need to get the kids to school. I was like, then I was like, my husband's away. <laughs> so, but luckily he was coming back that day, but I couldn't get a hold of him because he's at the airport. Nobody was answering the phone apart from my friend. So she came with me. This time it was a bit of a longer wait. I think they hadn't retrieved the liver yet and it wasn't from Leeds apparently. So I um, I sort of said, can I eat? Can I have breakfast? And like, you probably have your lunch as well because it might be a long wait. And I didn't have it till the following morning. So it was about a 12 hour wait that time. 
My two surgeons were amazing. To be honest, they came in and I didn't realise who they were at first because they were so, like, casual, like, just so lovely and casual and I sort of think of surgeons as quite, like, not as personal, quite, but they were, they were really lovely, really lovely and then put me at ease because I was second to go down and I remember saying to them, shouldn't I be first? I was like, I've got two young kids, I'm thinking you're going to be really tired by the time you get to me. But they were fine, they were like, oh, we could do it with our eyes shut and I was like, don't do that. But they were sort of joking. It was, they were, yeah, they were lovely. But Molly is, so she was seven. Yeah, she was seven. She, yeah, I've explained everything to her because she's quite tuned in. You know, she's not daft. And and I sort of said, oh, I'm going she knew, she knew about getting the new liver. And um, she was sort of like, where does it come from? And then I thought, right, do I put, like, a scientific spin that they've made it? Or shall I just be brutally honest? <laughs> and she knows about death, and I think because of my job, I'm very open about death and dying and whatnot. So I told her, and she was actually fine. She was, I just said, just somebody's had to... Somebody was going to die anyway, and luckily they signed up and matches mummy's bloods, and, you know, so I can take their living. I thought she'd be a bit freaked out, but she's totally fine, actually. <laughs> she's just, yeah. So I'll always be honest about it. So, like, I would tell them that um, that she had a poly liver, so they had to take it out and bring her a new one so that she can um, live better. That's what I would say to my friend. And have you had to be a bit careful about jumping on mummy's tummy when she's in bed? Yeah. <laughs> You're not a problem, are you, really? No, it's my brother. <laughs> he just, like, jumps... He's like, can I jump on you? And, like, I think last night he said, I'm going to jump on you or something. Probably, yeah. <laughs> we only thought Mummy was going to be in hospital for a little bit, but that we're, it was like two weeks or something. It was, it was only a week. Oh. <laughs> Probably felt like two weeks, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> felt like two weeks. So do you understand sort of where the new livers come from? Um... Not really. In the middle-ish. Because I know it comes from... I know it, I know it comes from another person who's died and then they, like, give it to my mum. Yeah. Is mummy more fun now she's got a new liver? Yeah. <laughs> what thing, what's, what's she doing that's making her more fun? She's got more energy. That's true, very true. And she's feeling better I than am. before. Yeah. It's made a massive change to my life, massively, and I'm be forever grateful. But then they've obviously lost someone and it's like, oh... Like, what can you honestly say that, like, thank you, thank you isn't enough, is it? But, yeah, I think I think in my letter, I think I'd just sort of try and really reiterate how much it has changed, not only my, but my kids. And, yeah, it's, it's a bit of, like, out-of-this-world type. I think the most important thing is having the conversation with your family because we do not know what's around the corner, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring and I know that conversation can be quite difficult and some people will find it quite challenging but like I said before, those the most difficult conversations I've been involved with are families who have never had that conversation and they don't know what their loved one wanted. When you're losing a loved one, it's the worst possible time to try and make a decision so to have that taken off your shoulders and know that you know definitely what your loved one wanted because you had those conversations, whether it was just once or a couple of times. It really does take it off the shoulders of a family to make a decision. All they're doing is then supporting a decision. 
and it's lovely when we speak to families and they know straight away they often bring it to us and say he wanted to donate can you help with that so when people say to us i'm on the register i'll be an organ donor the first thing we say is tell your families i've looked after a um a teenage boy who who told his mum that he would want to be a donor if that ever happened to him and unfortunately he did have an accident and his mum knew straight away and brought it to the doctors that he wanted to be a donor and that that just took so much off her shoulders at that time and it means so much to her now years later that 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 happened so yeah it's the biggest um, takeaway that when people talk to me about donation is to tell your families. I work with recipients every single day and I can't express to you how it's life-saving and life-changing for people. It's the most amazing gift and the most amazing legacy that you can leave in your life. It is really important for everybody to, especially like with your, your spouse or your partner, and it's not even a big conversation really, is it? It doesn't need to be a big deal, does it? And if they don't, fair enough, it's personal choice, isn't it? But. It's just, it's a life changing. You can give somebody a different life and a better life. It's completely changed my life, my family's life. Sasha puts it perfectly there. Donation shouldn't be a big deal, but it's so important that you make your wishes known to your loved ones. A quick conversation could be the difference between life and death for not just one person, but many. Transplantations become normalised in society because it's so commonplace. But hearing from the teams of people who need to work in perfect unison to make these operations a success is utterly remarkable and something we shouldn't take for granted. I'd like to say a massive thanks to Sasha, Molly, Claire, Rachel, Mike and Shahid for letting us into their world and explaining the complex process of transplantation. You've been listening to Vital Signs, the podcast from Leeds Teaching Hospitals. <laughs>